Welcome back, wrestling fans. Psychic Media Angelo here. Welcome to Wrestling with the Future. We have an amazing show for you with a special guest tonight. Uh, our guest, and I'll introduce him in a moment, uh, quickly becoming a Hollywood bigwig. At least in in my realm, he is. Uh, he's probably the most famous guy I know right now. <laughs> you got to I'll tell you that. And uh, of course, I'm joined by you. You heard that beckoning voice in the wilderness there that is uh he is the uh, the king of the ring the elvis of pro wrestling jeff the ref robinson <laughs> how are you jeff i'm doing great how are you doing angelo i'm terrific brother see we got uh got some exciting news today yeah we are on itunes finally <laughs> it's, it's only taken forever and a day to get up there but uh, oh my god so just let everybody know we are now on Podbean, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher. We are on YouTube for our video format programs. And uh, so, oh, and we now have a Facebook. We are at Facebook.com forward slash Wrestling with the Future. And uh, so, Jeff, so let's uh, get into what happened this week. Let's uh, give me a little heads up before I bring Mike in. I mean, you're talking like wrestling news? Or, or, uh, well, no, I mean, politics. Of course, wrestling news. <laughs> well, I mean, the big news was fallout from the Saudi Arabia, and now it's coming out that Things may not have been what they were originally being reported as, which was they were being reported that they were grounded due to the Saudi government. Evidently, there was legit mechanical difficulties. AJ Styles was on Natty's reporting the same thing, and pretty much the main the main people, and it's not even like they're towing the company line. They're all kind of saying, it's not like they're all saying the same thing and going, no more questions. Right. And then on top of that, the WWE did sign a deal that now is taking them all the way through 2027, so... Right. Um, I would say if they were owed money, why would you resign? Why would you sign another deal that takes you through 2027, guaranteeing them even more? Shows? Well, unless they got their, their payment in full. Uh, my understanding was that it was, yeah, but my understanding, Jeff, was that it was legitimately uh, upwards to $400 million that was owed yeah. for the for the previous yeah, and, and that was for the previous crown jewel, right? Or was it, am I wrong there? I, I think it may have been the previous one and one prior. Um, they, they said here's where the discrepancy was, and it came out, and it, I guess, like, because they got a report for the stockholders. There was evidently a $60 million payment made recently. Okay. That was for previous event held, and, I mean, everybody's assuming it came from from the Saudi, you know, deal because everybody else has to kind of pay in full, you know, as soon, you know, if they bring them in for any, you know, show or whatever, so. Right. Well, I want to get our guest's opinion in on this, so I want to introduce him to everyone. Yeah. My guest tonight is an award-winning filmmaker. He is a director, producer, actor, playwright, screenwriter, and has shared the stage with the likes of Meryl Streep, Francis McDormand, who I love, Wesley Snipes, uh, just to name a few, and uh, his name is Mike Messier. Mike, welcome to the show tonight. 
Hi, Angelo. Hi, Jeff. It's great hey, to be here. I, I hate to interrupt. i got to ask him really quick. Are you related to Mark Messier, the uh, hockey player? I taught him everything he knows, although I never skated myself, and he, he owes me a lifetime of commissions. The, uh, the answer to that is uh, I think we are distantly related because most Messiers from French-Canadian roots are related, but I've never met the guy. I've had a, I had a wall-framed uh, photograph of Messier and Gretzky on my wall in uh, my apartment up in New England for the last uh, 10 years. I recently moved, and I passed uh, – that frame photograph to a cousin of mine who's a big hockey fan, a big enthusiast. My cousin, A.J. Messier, is actually making films himself, and he's been working on some documentaries about uh, African-American uh, hockey players, believe it or not. So, I mean, uh, you know, there's uh, filmmaking in my family, and, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I, my dad used to take me to hockey games a lot at the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, which is where I used to see pro wrestling a lot, too. And... Yep. Um, you know, we were just talking on the air uh, before we got on the air about uh, Ivan Koloff and how I got to see Ivan Koloff wrestle in the Capitol Center against Bob Backlund. I saw a Snooker Morocco match at the Capitol right. Center. I saw, I, I think I saw the first ever six star match, uh, according to good old Dave Meltzer, uh, Steamboat versus Flair. Their 89 match that got the first uh, six stars from uh, the Observer. Right. Uh, I was there for that match as a young kid. So, I mean, I, I've. I've had a really good run as a wrestling fan. As far as this uh, question of the day, Angelo, that you raised, uh, it's interesting. I get riled up about it. You know, like like that's been part of my history for the last two years is the whole WWE right. Saudi Arabia deal. It, it, it hits close to home for me because one of the things that I don't like in the world is hypocrisy. I understand right. that it's a complicated issue and that there's cultural differences and uh, so forth. But to me, that the WWE accepted this deal in the first place, knowing that the women and Sami Zayn, because of his uh, his, his ancestry, were not yeah. going to be welcomed like everybody else to be on these shows. They won't even allow Alistair, well, they will not even allow Aleister Black due to his religious tattoos. Um, right. And yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I have some strong opinions on that, but I know I think I know Mike well enough to know that he is highly opinionated on this and is not shy about sharing his opinion. You know, Mike, I was, in my introduction, I uh, I touted your accolades, but I forgot the most important accolade, which is after all these years of being subjected to the bullshit, you're still a fan of pro wrestling. Yeah, in, yeah. in, in fact, my, my biggest thing as a pro wrestling fan was uh, I, I wrestled about 13 wrestling matches. I actually lost a retirement match and stayed retired, which I, I feel has some credibility uh, that I lost a retirement match. It, it does in this back. day and age, yes. <laughs> right. you, may be, you may be the only guy who did stay retired. <laughs> right. right. I, did, I did ring announcing. Uh, I've done a commentary. And as, as following the career path of pro wrestling, the... the closest I got to really being in on the inner circles was I had a job interview for the WWE creative writing team back in 2007. Wow. Uh, yes. Oh, okay. So that was an interesting... Now, see, I didn't know that, Mike. Well, that's that's a story that I, I've told a little bit. Um, I told... I did a, a I did a short podcast, a short run podcast myself called The Foreign Object. Um, a friend of mine passed away uh, at a young age, uh, Brian Danovich. He was doing a wrestling podcast, and he passed away the summer of 2018, very unexpectedly. 
and they kind of patched me in as the substitute host. And I talked about that situation. Right. I called it uh, Titan Towers closing early. The Mike Messier creative <laughs> writing team uh, interview because basically I was there right. on December 13, 2007, and Titan Tower closed early because they were fearing a snowstorm. And for this company that always claims to be so tough and Vince McMahon works six hour, uh, 26 hours a day, uh, for whatever reason, the one day that I was there for a job interview, they kind of hurried me in and hurried me out. And I still think that my storyline that I wrote uh, would, would be better programming all these years for the WWE fans than what they're doing now. And yeah. uh, so when I, when, I, when I watch wrestling, especially WWE, there's a certain uh, anger built in because I'm watching this stuff and I have a mind's eye of what I would do if my storyline was implemented. Well, Mike, let, that's a great segue. Let's talk about the, the current situation and the incredible lapse, which I, I call it a lapse in creative. You know, they just came back from this, you know, much talked about Saudi trip, okay? A lot of debate on whether they should have gone in the first place, but look, that's neither here nor there. They went. They've been there a few times now. Uh, your thoughts on it? What do you What do you think? I mean, and and I know you. You're not going to be shy about it, right? Uh, what do you think? Uh, tell me where is the creative in, in all of this? And I'll tell you, I saw no creative even in the Saudi show. And I was really surprised that they had an opportunity and they just let it slip away. I guess I would start by saying it's kind of like a uh, choose-your-own-adventure book. You know, once you make the right choice or the wrong choice, and you go to page 52, you go to page 36, you go down a trajectory. So the initial thought that I would share, and I've been sharing for two years now almost, is that once they agreed that we will do one show on the WWE Network and we'll leave the women at home, we'll leave Sami Zayn at home as concessions, you've given your power away, meaning you as in WWE. You've basically said right. that your your money, it doesn't matter that it's Saudi Arabian money, it could be anybody's money. Your money is more valuable to us than the integrity that we've been claiming to have when it comes to fostering a women's evolution. Right. Uh, it, it, means, it means more to us than this one particular performer, Sam Zayn. Wait, can I interrupt real quick on that? Actually, sure. I, I'll say this. WWE, when that was being said about them, and they brought that up about the women's evolution and, and them supposedly making such a way, and how could they go over there where the country you know, holds the women down like they do, WWE said, how else do you make progress and let you see, let them see the progress that you've made You know, as far as like bringing Western culture over there? I mean, it took them two years, but they finally had a women's match. Well, but but Jeff, in in fairness, though, and, and again, Mike, I'm sorry, but in in fairness, there are a lot of people, and and I have, you know, expressed my feelings. You and I have talked about this. There are a lot of people who, just out of principle. You know, and we're talking about diehard WWE fans. Forget wrestling. Leave yeah, wrestling yeah. out of this for a minute. The fact that the WWE, which doesn't call itself wrestling, by the way, it's sports entertainment, and it's more entertainment than sport. 
what have they to gain? They're, they're not going to change a country with, you know, 5,000 years of religious persecution in two or three shows. And I, I understand your point that, yes, it's an opening. I, I will concede that. But I think that perhaps, and I'm not speaking for you, Mike, but I think that you and I are probably more in agreement in that they probably shouldn't have gone. I, I would say, that, here's my thought, Angelo. I, I, I feel that they put, I think that they're putting their talent at risk uh, physically when they do these shows, given the, uh, from what I understand, that I've never been to Saudi Arabia, and I have one Saudi Arabian friend, and we haven't had a big conversation about this type of thing, ironically enough me and my Saudi Arabian friend, but I would say that when you put money as the first thing, and I, I have to think that's the case because of two reasons, if nothing else. One, um, that there is a, a, a part of this contract, apparently, that was reported, I'm not making this up, that if the WWE decides to sell their company within the next 10 years, Saudi Arabia has the first right of purchase. Now I've read yeah. that article in a couple of places. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I was. I'm glad that you mentioned that. I was going to bring that up. That's very disconcerting to me. Now, Jeff, I know that you know about this. What are your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I, do they? My whole the way I look at it is, if you look, if you do not consider, as you said, they're sports entertainment, not pro wrestling. You don't consider them an actual sport. That, to me, is no different than any other entertaining entertainment. I don't care if you're doing a concert over there or you're even producing a movie that happens to air over there that they you know, splice and dice all over. It's still yeah. entertainment. You're entertaining the people. The, the people of Saudi Arabia have not asked for their government to be as screwed up as they are. Correct. So why do they, why do they have to pay the price of not being able to be entertained by what they are entertained by on TV. Well, because it's always been that way. That's but that's the short answer. How do you make, but how else do you make headway into there and show them, you know what, we're not as bad as you think that we are. Our music isn't as bad as you think that it is. It's not, right. it's not that. And let's well, the progress. Well, now, let's get, let's get. He did not take the money to get paid. They absolutely positively did. It, it was all for a payday. There's no doubt about well, it. Let, let's get the opinion of somebody that's uh, a bit more world-traveled than you and I. Mike, what do you think? Well, I think the second point I would make, and look, this goes to that you know, Dave Meltzer report, for good or for bad. If the report is flawed, if there's conjecture, but other people, uh, I believe Hugo Saganovich, if I'm saying his name right, the yeah. former Spanish announced team. And, and He's the one right. who picked apart because of his story yesterday. I just right. know that it may not have actually went down that way. So, Well, well the story, the, right, but okay, so if the story is flawed and if I'm going on flawed information or incorrect or a lie, then what I'm about to say could be totally worthless, but at least given a day or two ago, the story that the live broadcast of the Jewel 2019 40 minutes because he was having a pissing contest of sorts with the prince and so his his uh, receipt so to speak to use a wrestling term was to 
pull the plug on the show for the Saudi Arabian home TV viewer. Obviously, right. the people in the stadium were seeing it live with their own eyes, but the yeah. people at Saudi Arabian homes throughout the country could no longer see this thing live, and then they came to some type of agreement or patched things together to put it in 40 minutes late. Now, that's being contested, yeah. I guess, at this point? It is, it is because as of, as of like a couple hours ago, it was being reported that basically – it had something. It had nothing to do with WWE pulling it. It was it had something to do with the channel that they air through. It right. just didn't pick up the broadcast in a timely fashion or whatever you want to call it. But now, That's Jeff, let me ask you a question, Jeff. How do you unring the bell? WWE. That was actually reported by Meltzer. Oh well, now, but Jeff, how do you unring a bell? The information is already out there. How do you? Uh, no, no, no. The, the information now, now it's gonna, now it's gonna take. I mean, the fallout from it being as big of a story as and headline breaking as it was the last few days. Right. Back, it, it's almost like trying to put the toothpaste back in the in the, in the tube. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because I think the story's now out there, and people are already gonna have an opinion. And and five years from now, you're gonna hear the same thing. You know, said even though people are going to be like, no, no, that ain't entirely true. It's the same as any other story that may get reported by Meltzer or right. As far as this is fact, and then all of a sudden, five years later, it comes out that it, it no, that never really went down that way, and everybody, yeah. like, oh shit. Well, it's it, going back to the question then that I asked Mike earlier, and Mike, uh, let's return to this question. You've been a wrestling fan for a very long time. You've seen the ebb and flow. You've seen the ups and downs. What's wrong, in your opinion, and you're, and you're a guy that, that should know, creativity, you write, you produce, you direct, you star. What's wrong with the creative? Why can't they get their act together? Let me give you, let me give you my interpretation of about 85 to 90% of WWE promos currently. If I could tonight in this ring, I'm going to prove myself to the WWE universe, to my family, to my friends, and most importantly, Shelton Benjamin to you. And you can replace Shelton Benjamin with with to Miz. I'm going to show myself to the WWE universe tonight in this ring to my opponent's. You know, basically, they all sound very canned. They all sound very yeah. memorized. They handcuffed them and they put the script on in front of them and said, "Here's your scripted promo. You better memorize it, or else you're going to get in trouble, buddy." Right. You know, Jeff, you and I had that conversation on the last show. Yeah. Scripted promos versus bullet points, Mike, is what we spoke about. Well, in fact, Jeff. Yeah. In fact, Jeff and I, I think in uh, two weeks, are going to do a whole show. On the art of the promo. Yeah. And uh, and I'm a big fan. I'm going to just tell you straight up. I'm a big fan of bullet point promos. I like, Give me a couple of the who, what, where, when, and why. Give me a microphone and a camera. Go away. Here's, here's the best era of promos that anyone's ever seen, in my opinion. Uh, and maybe there's something else out there better. But 1985 to 1988... Hell yeah. Rocket Promotions, Saturday night, WTBS. Yep. You have Ric Flair, you have Tully Blanchard, Dusty Rhodes, even guys that weren't the best at the promos, like Ronnie Garvin, at least 
it seemed like Ronnie Garvin was telling you that he's going to punch you in the face and knock you out. You had Jim yeah. Cornette. You had, you know. Now, yeah, the, the reason why was, and here, I think you would maybe agree with me, Mike. Back then, the reason why the art of promo worked is you had to talk them into the seats. Right. Now they don't have to worry about it. Guys, also, don't have to yeah. worry about talking you into tuning in on Monday night. You're going to tune in anyway. They figure you will. They right. Don't have to worry about they don't have to worry about even talking you into buying the pay-per-view. They figure you're going to have it because you got the network. Well, so. yeah, remember, Jeff, you and I spoke about, you know, the, the classic promo was Dusty Rhodes. In one sentence, he gave you the who, what, where, when, and why. Ric Flair in the Omni in Atlanta at 8 o'clock. I'll see you, Ric Flair. We're going to be down there in the steel cage. Listen here, baby, me and you, Ric Flair, we're going to bleed lots of blood there at the Omni, baby. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, wait do you hear is Hulk Hogan. <laughs> well, brother. Listen here, we're going to be here at the Cap Center, brother. Me and the Irish Sheep, we're going to go. We're hanging and we're banging. We're going up and down the East Coast. And listen here, brother. <laughs> I, I, you know, well, the, the funny thing is, Jeff, I saw a Hulk Hogan defending the WWF title against the Iron Sheik about two weeks after he won it, and George uh, Michael from the Sports Machine was the uh, guest ring announcer for that match. Wow! So I've, 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 I, guys, I'll say this: you know, I don't, I try not to age myself by giving away some of the dirty details of the matches that I've seen live. But I've right. seen anything from the Crockett Cup 1987, both nights live, Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff. Uh, right. You know, basically had 23 tag teams. And this is how dedicated as a young wrestling fan I was. The, the Crockett Cup, the 1987 two-night Crockett Cup, they was advertising 24 tag teams. Yep. The first night, uh, Robert Gibson, I think, came to the ring, and they said that Ricky Morton suffered an eye injury. So the Rock yeah, and Roll Express. Right. So, so, so uh, right. they had to drop out. Now, me and my friend, who I went to the show with, Randy uh, Mech, we were so just we were so distraught that one tag team dropped out of the Crockett Cup of 24 teams. Yeah, we were determined. We were determined to figure out who the substitute team was going to be because they kept telling us there was two substitute teams in the waiting. Right. That if anyone dropped out or if there's any craziness with travel. They put, you know, the Gladiators or, or you know, Black Bar on Bass or somebody in this thing. And we were waiting for that second night to see who the substitute team would be for the Rock and Roll. And, you know, I, I didn't come to the point of writing a letter to Gary Juster, the Baltimore promoter, demanding that a 24 oh, yeah. be shipped in for a special appearance. But I was close. So I, I've seen the best. And guess what? I've seen the worst. I was there the night that Eric, Eric Kulas... He got his head uh, smashed in with a toaster oven and got 42 stitches in his forehead from New There when Scott Crazy. Hall uh, came out to the ring in uh, Fall River, Massachusetts uh, eight or nine years, years ago, uh, totally uh, not fit for prime time, right? There's and, a, and, now, that one I blame the promoter on for exploiting Scott Hall in that, that case. He really shouldn't have done it. But I got a quick question. I want to go way back here. We're going to go back to your, your fandom years here in 1987, Crockett Cup. Two yes. things I got to ask you about because I remember that. I, I, that's in my wheelhouse right there is Crockett and all that. So what was it like to see Madden MTA come out? I mean, I know he was slow moving, but to see and to hear that pop, what was that like for one? One I was wondering. It was very emotional. Um, it was very emotional because – we were all, at least me and my friend and my friend's older brother, we were all kind of convinced that this was the first 
steps, so to speak, to him making a comeback to the ring. Same because, here. Right. We were all kind of told that in the in the wrestling magazines, and that's what they were trying to tell us. And look, at the time, nobody would know one way or the other. I mean, I remember a magazine that NTA said, I'll be... I'll be back in the ring for Starcade 88. And obviously yep. that came and went and didn't happen. But the good thing for Magnum is he's had a pretty good life. I believe he's, he's, uh, he's been married. He's had kids. I think he's the stepfather of Tully Blanchard's daughter, Tessa Blanchard. So. And, he, and he's had a hand in her uh, training. And he had a hand in Tessa's training as far as yeah. Tessa didn't want to tell Tully that she wanted to get in the business. She really didn't want to even tell Magnum. She was being trained by George South, and she had been bumping around for like two months. And she had this really good match with Cedric Alexander at the time. And then George South said, do either one of your dads know that you're doing this? And she said, no. And he said, then I'm not touching you no more. <laughs> and she said, but why? And he said, because I'm not having your dads coming down here ready to kick my butt over training you. When, when I, no, no, he was like, I got to get their permission first. He was like, you're well, you know, Jeff, that, that kind of reminds me of a story that JJ Dillon told me, you know, uh, and Mike, I hadn't recently had the opportunity to meet, uh, Brian Pillman Jr. And, uh, JJ oh, yeah. Dillon, uh, you know, along with Tatanka, but JJ had to train Barry Windham Outside of Blackjack Mulligan's knowledge, yeah. he would take him to a training school in Texas without Blackjack knowing. And that was some feat because Blackjack was, you know, he was the man back in the day. And they didn't throw Barry into the ring until they knew. And when they did, Blackjack still had no clue. Threw him in the ring and tied him. Yeah, and that. His dad, his dad said, all right, then the kid can go. Yeah, and that's the story I heard, Jeff. Absolutely. Mike, let me ask you a question. Here's you know, a question for Mike. Go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. What was the pop like for the Mulkey brothers that night? It was pretty big. The, the Mulkey brothers, to give the background, were about six days removed from winning their first match or winning a match for the first time. They had lost a lot of matches. Oh, yeah. And they had hyped up this tag team called the Gladiators, from the West Coast. Yes. It was so vague it was the West Coast Tag Team Champions, the Gladiators. So we were expecting some big, scary-looking guys to come in, like, you know, the Mir Pietroff types or whatever. But instead, we got these two masked guys. I don't know if it was Jim Lincoln. It was Lincoln. South and Gary Royal. Oh, Gary Royal. He's yeah. He's a classic. So, uh, <laughs> and the only ones who even knew that they were going over were George South, Gary Royal, um, and Dusty, and they didn't even give the Iggy to the referee ahead of time. The, the, um, what about the yeah, multi? He just, you know, knowing that, okay, guy's down for three, he's going to he kick out at two if he's supposed to. One, two, three. Oh, shit. That's why they got the legit reaction of the Mulkies, you know, big, big, big boom that they got. I was because, because they won that, though, that's what led to them getting the tournament match. Yeah, they got the tournament match supposedly. Over the gladiator's spot, supposedly, like the Mulkies got in the number 24 instead of the gladiators. So, and there was a sign in the audience that said Mulkey Mania. I mean, it was, I'm telling you, like, and, and for the time, you know, the first night of the Crockett Cup was four and a half hours long on a yeah. Friday night. The second night was three and a half hours long. And I remember, you know, a couple of years ago, WrestleMania went longer than expected. It was like a four and a half hour WrestleMania or something. And I remember and a lot of 
Seven years. Well, seven hours, seven hours. But um, I remember thinking, hey, I went to basically like eight hours of pro wrestling when I was a little kid and loved every minute of it. Why are people complaining? And, and that's right now. They get well, more, they, they're not invested in it. They don't have any anything to sink their teeth into. They no longer, the matches no longer even mean anything to half the fans. I mean, other well, than, like, now that leads me, that leads me to my next question. Mike, what happened to the emotional investment? We used to be emotionally invested in our wrestlers. What happened? Tough enough. Uh, tough enough professional wrestling in my book. I'm talking about enough around 2002. I, think I blame that, ECW too. Well, uh, I was a fan of ECW. We can talk about that. Uh, a press pass to cover ECW matches in New England. But for me, when the Tough Enough show with Maven and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Jackie and, and, and Al Snow and Taz, like the, the original... so far. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Because I think in, in whatever it was, you know, SummerSlam 97 when uh, they did the show in New Jersey and Vince, you know, had The Undertaker and that politician lady and they were all so self-congratulatory that this was not going to be under the uh, boxing and wrestling commission of the state of New Jersey or whatever that was. And that was one thing to say that this is sports entertainment, not a, not a contested fight. That was fine, I guess. Yeah. But to take the next level and say, here's, you know, uh, John Matthews. How do and this is how you do a headlock. And this is how you do it, it goes to, it kind of goes to what Arn Anderson said on his podcast recently because they asked him why he practiced kayfabe for so long. Right. And he went into it and he said, he said, the way I've always looked at it is it's like this. He said, if I were to take my kids, these are my family, he said, and spend, let's say, three or $400 on a really good magic show, David Copperfield, he's in Vegas, whatever. If he said, if all at the end of the night, lights go up and all of a sudden a man comes out there on stage and goes, okay, everybody stand by. We're getting ready to show you how David did all the tricks. He was like, you just blew my $400 I spent. Yeah. Trying to figure out how you did it. He said, I'd rather try to figure it out and guess than have you tell me how I did it. Right. And he said, for the longest time, people may have gone, all right, he ain't really hitting them, but how did they do it? They didn't know. How, they didn't know the art of the magic of how to be manipulated. Right. They didn't well, you can thank Vince McMahon for that, Jeff. What? What's that? Sorry. You can thank Vince McMahon for that. He's the one who pulled back the veil. Well, that's what that's what Mike was getting at on that show. Tough enough, they did. That was a WWF run show. Well, and that's that's one aspect of it. But Vince McMahon came out clearly and said, "We are no longer good guys and bad guys." But people were invested in good guys and bad guys. That was the whole point. I mean, well, but see, okay, I think, Mike, would you agree or would you not agree with me? The fans of today are different than the fans of, of, of what me and you were growing up. Oh, yes, totally. They are different. And they I, want to be more of a part of the show than they want to sit there and actually just watch the show. they rather try to take it over. Yeah, we are awesome. The little yeah. Get heard. Yeah, yeah when, you, when you have an audience chanting, we are awesome. Because they're self-congratulating themselves about their chance. And, right. And, uh, and then, you know, let's go beach ball. Why are you cheering right. on a beach ball? I'm not. And you know what? That's not even saying that the match sucks that's going on in the ring. But the it's point the is you're not paying attention to the match. But the fans, that's what I'm getting at, is the fans of today, they would rather critique and pick apart that match. 
They, well, they, yeah, but you and I had that conversation. Everybody's an expert now. <laughs> and I, I, I agree with me on that one, too. I, I would say this. It's a chicken or the egg scenario. Do you blame the fans or do you blame the promotions that are serving up this meal? And, and if, if the fans are picking it apart or giving it five stars or four stars. I blame you, the Internet. Okay. I mean, we, we can... We can blame a lot of things. I mean, I, I would say that a great deal of credibility was lost at the Royal Rumble 1994 when The Undertaker ascended to the heavens after no losing doubt. a casket. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? For sure, absolutely. I mean, you could, people could sit there and pick apart the different hokey things that they, the business has done over the years that made people go scratch their head and go, come on now. I mean, buried alive, come on now. And it's always been the WWF, but that's made you go, are we serious? Are we really looking at this crap? You know, like, right. well, really here, here's a conversation to have. Jeff, I want you and Mike to have the conversation. Why is WWE entertaining? Not why it's not, why it is entertaining. Why should I, as a casual viewer, and you know, you're very familiar with my viewing habits. I don't watch. I rely on you. And that's the truth. I don't watch the pro I watch AEW and I do like NXT, but I don't watch Raw and I don't watch SmackDown. I would say right now the reason to watch Raw and SmackDown is because the NXT boys are over there right now. Other than that, they haven't given me much to sink my teeth into. Maybe the Fiend character, I dig him. Um, I, I mean, they do got some entertainment. I think that here's the problem is they do come. I want to stop you there. Uh, Jeff, I want to stop you there. You said two things, whether you know it or not. You said two things that were critical. Critical. The Fiend character and over. Well, okay. The problem is, is they got no characters. They don't have characters. Thank you. Thank you very much. And, and that's the point I was trying to make. That's the point I was trying to make. There are no characters to be invested in. No, Mike, am I wrong here, Mike? Tell me if I'm wrong. The, the you, two words I was going to say uh, that came to mind were big personalities. And it's debatable if they do have the big personalities, but I, I can name a few. You can say Becky Lynch, um, although she's not my personal favorite, has a big personality. Yeah. You could say Alexa Bliss has a big personality. You can okay. say Dean definitely has a big personality. You can say Roman Reigns, although I think that his packaging, his presentation was severely flawed because they didn't let him be himself or anything close to himself. They there try to make go. him to be this brooding, big, strong, badass John Cena with a Samoan tan for the last 10 years, and they didn't let him be who he wanted to be, which just came off as disingenuous. And he if they let him around. be a Samoan badass and gave him a mic and said, here you go, and cut a promo, that he would have been yeah. He would have been your next rock, honestly. I, I, right. I swear to God. I, I mean that wholeheartedly. I, I agree. And I, I just feel that it's a thing where, um, the WWE, to me, what I was trying to do in 2007, and the, the odd thing is, guys, I could be hired by any major company right now, AEW, WWE, Impact, uh, anybody, and I could apply my same storyline to any company because what I was coming up with was basically a concept 
be used regardless of who the talent was. Well, and, now, uh, Mike, that that's a great segue. With as accomplished as you are as a filmmaker and writer, particularly screenwriting, you're a playwright, you deal with characters, you deal with the written word, but you not only that, you have that tool that takes the character from the page and breathes life into him. With all of that, and you're passionate about it, I know because I've, I've seen some of your work, explain to me how that passion transcends in the wrestling for you personally, and how do we get our wrestling back? Because I want my wrestling back. You ain't gonna get it back. Well, and Jeff is going, I'm not gonna get it back. <laughs> I, I, think, I think, I think, okay, let me start with the second question first, if I could. I think the best thing that's happened for wrestling in the last two, three, four years is competition and not fabricated SmackDown versus Raw competition. That's no, a fabrication. AEW. Yes, exactly, Jeff. And it's, it's AEW, it's Impact. It's MLW, Major League Wrestling. A lot of people sleep on them, but they're there. It's uh, There's a women's wrestling show. I think it's the reboot of Powerful Women on Wrestling, the Dave McClain thing, after a 25- or 30-year hiatus, yeah. which I saw you know, Tessa Blanchard uh, on that. I mean, New Japan Pro Wrestling doing shows in the United States and getting an audience for them. Ring of Honor, although I disagree uh, that they're owned uh, by a political organization, organization Sinclair Broadcasting Ring of Honor is an option for wrestlers and for fans so I think true how do we get our rest how do we get our wrestling back through competition uh the passion uh that you talk about I think the thing that's so fun about pro wrestling is that a guy like Dennis Rodman could actually do a couple of good matches he didn't have a full wrestling career but because he was such a, a peacock a metaphorical peacock in the late 90s Dennis Rodman could come out and in a tag team match or even the match he had with Macho Man one-on-one, -on -one, which he basically let Macho Man dominate him. Rodney, right. who was a personality, could have a decent match. I mean, that, that Tyson Fury uh, He actually boxer, had a good match. He actually had a good match, right. You know, and, and it, now, it's not... Now, Brandon Strowman carried him, but he did have a decent match. Right. And, and to me, here's the thing with, with celebrities in wrestling as a little side venture. I think that it's possible for almost anyone to have one decent match. Eula McGillicuddy and Alfonso had a bloodbath that was one decent match. Yes. Yeah, they the, did. Right. The challenge True. is to have 350 good matches a year. Exactly. Like, our buddy, like, like Evan Ginsberg's documentary. How do you have, how can you, whether it's Ox Baker, who was a friend of mine, Ivan Koloff, Ric Flair, Terry Funk, uh, the, the Roman Reigns, the Seth Rollins, uh, Chris Jericho, whoever it is, if you can have a consistent level of passable to decent to awesome matches, 350 days a year, 200 days a year, whatever it is, that makes you a professional wrestler, not yeah. someone who had a professional wrestling match. I never considered myself a professional wrestler. I had 13 pro wrestling matches. I was not a professional wrestler. I was a guy who wrestled. And that's why my friend uh, yes. Brian Danovich 
uh, respected that I always said that because I didn't say that, I, oh, I had a short-lived wrestling career. I said, no, I had 13 matches, but I never claimed that I was a pro wrestler. You know what I mean? Now, yeah. I, I, I want to get into I was going to ask you really quick. You were talking about the competition and, and how that's good. And um, the different – I think part of the thing is, is the guys don't have a chance to get over anymore because they don't, they're WWE 50, 50 books so bad. It's, it's horrible. horrible. It's you know, awful. One reason why you don't like it, Angelo is because one week you tune in and the Miz is winning the next week. He loses the following week. He has a draw. And then we're going to go to a pay-per-view match. Why do I want to watch that pay-per-view for that, one? That's exactly why. And you and I have had that discussion. Whenever I seen you two face off four different times. Yeah. I want to watch it again. And on top of that, and, and, and then you're going, okay, it doesn't matter if they went. And see, they are so afraid of actually having anybody remotely go on a John Cena-like or a Roman Reigns-like winning streak. And I mean this. Yeah. So afraid of the fans crapping on them that they don't, they, 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 they just 50-50 book now. They need to get away from that. I'm okay with AEW putting up wins and loss records. By all means, give the fans something to watch and look at and go, well, damn, this dude's over 50. Holy shit, there's no way he's going to get a win. And then when he finally gets it, it's going to mean something. Well, and so AEW is on to something, and we know that. Why then does WWE not do what they always do and steal something out of somebody else's playbook? Because they're not going to go to, they don't think wins and losses matter. They think that fans don't care about it. But again, it, it because they're Well, clearly the fans do care about it, Jeff, because no, the WWE is getting crushed in the numbers. No, fans don't care about wins and losses when it comes to WWE talent for whatever reason. They'd rather just crap on you if you start going on a win streak. I'm serious. I mean, you look at when Roman got booed out of the building. Part of that was because they wanted Daniel Bryan to win. The other part of it was they were going, oh, you're shoving them down our throats by giving them all these wins. And you're making yeah. them like Superman. I remember that. Well, it happened in Philadelphia, and I was there. And For the let, Royal Rumble 2014? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And you let somebody. My hometown, Mike. I hear you, brother. You, you let somebody. We'll just we'll go over to the AEW really quick, and you let somebody like a Darby Allen all and go on that kind of monstrous run where he's getting nothing but solid and crowd ain't gonna crap on it. Fans are gonna be like, "Yeah, hey, Darby Allen's the shit." It's because the fans, for whatever reason, in WWE, they rather pick apart whoever's getting that push than they rather sit back and let somebody actually get a push. Or they go, "Well, you're not pushing who we want to see push." Well, whose fault is that? I don't know who to blame. I really don't. I, I, I know who I would blame. I, I would blame the promotion. You can't blame them but so much. Well, it used to be, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong. If you're making a movie, you want that, you're telling the story, right? Right. Okay. You're telling the audience what you want them to see, hear, and experience. That's how pro wrestling used to be. Somehow or somewhere along the way, the roles were reversed. Now the audience is telling you what to do. You're the promotion. How do you get the reins back? I got a theory on this, and I'll let Mike go ahead and give his take, and then I'll give you mine. I'm sure you will, Jack. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll go to accountability first, if I can, because I, I think you want that. To me, chicken of the egg is 
the buck stops here with the producer or director. Before we went on the air, I shared with you guys a documentary that I did that anyone can watch on YouTube or Vimeo. Just Google it. Um, Disregard the Vampire, a Mike Messier documentary, which was kind of my own come to Jesus meeting. As a director and as a producer, I had several projects that didn't come to fruition due to a lack of money or the the interest waned for whatever reason. Or And so basically, in that 40-minute doc that, that you guys have access to, anyone can watch it for free on YouTube or Vimeo, Disregard the Vampire, Mike Messier documentary. It was terms with myself as a filmmaker. Right. What, what have I done as, as successfully and what have I failed to do? I think Vince McMahon needs to have his disregard the vampire moment. I think Vince McMahon, and I'll be honest, and, and I don't mean to be a jerk, but other people have said this. Vince is getting older, like we all do, and Vince has had a hell of a hell of a run. No one can deny exactly. That it's time for him to step back. Right, but the thing, and, and Dean Ambrose or John Moxley said this on the Jericho podcast: Vince is going to die in the chair, and if Vince is not willing to give, he's up absolutely that power, right. Right, that 48% ownership that he has, apparently, then why would we expect, as morbid as it is, why would we expect anything to change until Vince passes on to that great Budokan Hall in the sky? And I'm not trying to be morbid, but why would we expect it to change great drastic way until yeah. moves on to the heavens. I think us as fans, you know, us diehards in the back of our little pea brain minds, we keep on holding out hope that Triple H is going to sit the old man down and go, you need to step aside, dude. You look at what I did when I did this. You look at what... That'll never happen, Jeff. No, no, but I, I said I think uh, fans, we keep on holding out hope that that's what's going to end up happening before he dies. Jeff, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Are the fans too reliant on Vince McMahon? Do they rely on him too much for their direction? Uh, like Mike is a director. I don't Okay. They don't want to admit it, but I think they do. Okay, like Mike is a director. He has a cast and crew. Yeah. He tells his actors where to stand. What to oh, do? No, I, I think the fans don't realize it, or they don't want to admit it, and that's why they try to regurgitate like somebody like, or they, they don't want to get behind somebody like Roman and different people. That's their way of rebelling, of going, you're not going to be the puppet master of Uncle Show, black alley. And part of that, though, this is what I was going to get at. This, I think part of that really comes from when they did the Dan Bryan angle back before uh, Roman and Philly and all that, when they did the whole Daniel Bryan Yes Movement deal. Right. And right. they made the fans actually believe that they manipulated that whole storyline. I agree. And they didn't. You know, that was really just the puppet masters playing the pieces. But and that's what's missing. That's what's missing. And that was my point earlier about how does the promotion get that control back? Again, you using Messier, you hire Mike Messi as a writer. There like you go. Done in 2007, and before that in 2002, and I will uh, implement the story. I, I'm in over the, the next 25 years. You, I, I'm in. Mike is the writer, and Jeff is his assistant. We're we're good to go. No, you Here's hire you. Jeff as the booker. <laughs> I, I I think the booker uh, position needs to be brought back, and to be. Yeah, you know, this is the thing, guys. I think when they talk about WWE and, and especially the three-hour Monday Night Raw, which is you know pretty much one hour too long, they've already they've already done that trajectory of signing that 
that three hours is really for other countries that right. want that third hour. It's not for the United States audience, it's for other countries. But my feeling is that shows like the, the UWF Power Hour, the one-hour UWF show that we all loved, the world-class championship wrestling show, one hour, and even the TBS Saturday night. Like back then, that was a big right. deal. Two hours of wrestling? Yeah. And But those shows somehow managed to be on the air for years and years and years and years yeah. without these tonight in this ring type promos. Somehow Rick Flair had, did it. <laughs> you know well, what I mean? It goes back, no, no, it goes what you said. They need one central booker, even if they go to a booking committee where you only have five or six guys sitting there controlling everything that happens. Instead, now you got 30 bookers right now. Right. And they all got Vince's ear, and they're all going, listen to my storyline, Mr. Vince. Listen to my storyline. And then you got somebody else. Hey, I got one over here. And, oh, no, I got one here. Well, I got one way back here for Bo Dallas and, and, and his partner, Curtis Axel. You want to hear it? Oh, you don't? Okay. I thought I had an idea. My bad. Well, now that, that created a problem, though, for WCW. Still, well, no, it WCW was okay, even with their booking committee. Even hear, hear me out. During their dying days, they were still pulling in a two-point whatever, and Vince would love to get that rating right now for, for a Raw or SmackDown. But Jeff, Jeff, hear me out, brother. <laughs> WCW and WWE were the only two players in the game. Okay? Now they have to split a single target audience with four major players. Okay? Four. Yeah. Here's the problem WCW had, and Vince Russo, who I'm not a big fan of, alluded oh. to this. The problem they had with the booking committee is there were 14 people on the booking committee and only two guys making decisions. Well, listen here, baby, when I controlled the book back in 1986, there was something happening. When I controlled it in 1987, there was something happening that was good. When I had it in 1988, there was something happening that was beautiful. You understand? And then when they took that away from me, they took all my power away from me. But, no, I mean, my point being, Dusty was the booker during that time. Exactly. He was the only booker. And he was the general. He was who everybody looked at. He was the one that guided the ship. And, and, but when they did go to a booking committee... People still look at 1989 and 90 and 91 with open eyes and go, man, it was still a thing of beauty. Mike, is the problem that there are no bookers, but there are writers? And I have a question after you respond to that. I I think, okay, the the problem with WWE, there are many problems with WWE, but one of them is that you've got three hours of Raw, you've got two hours of SmackDown. <clears throat> for excuse me, for a time you had two oh seven live, two oh five live. Sorry, two oh five live. You had uh, NXT. You have NXT UK. So, uh, you have an entire women's division spread over all these shows. You have fans demanding a women's tag team title. They're there for a month and then they become kind of second class. Mike, are they overproducing, Mike? But yes. The point is they have too much content, too much of a good thing means that you've diluted your fans' attention. Yeah. You, here's the thing with NXT. Everyone loves, not everyone, but a lot of people love NXT. I never really got into NXT, you know, two, three, four years ago. How would I get into NXT if all these top talents, the Oscars, the, even the Sasha Banks to some extent, right. 
uh, Samoa Joe. They all come up to the main roster, uh, that tag team, the Ascension. And people complain that they're not being used as well as they were used in NXT. Because they are. Well, right. But my point is, why get emotionally invested into NXT if you're just going to suffer and feel pain when your favorite NXT star becomes a WWE main card mid-carder? Go ahead, Jack. No, no, no. What I was going to say is that is a beautiful thing about what they're doing now. And they have actually Triple H hit on this on, um, uh, what's his name, his podcast, uh, Corey Corey Graves. Graves. Where he said that they are now going to make NXT kind of like their own entity, kind of like their own territory. And then they're going to have Raw and SmackDown. They're going to try to make them all kind of separate because he said he's going to make, why is Finn Balor there? He said, because they weren't using them. And he knew that they weren't. So he can get, he said, you bring him down there for six months. Give them a new set of wheels, so yeah. to say, and bring back up, and now they're ready to see them again. Well, we need to make an editorial comment about Corey Gray's podcast. It is written by, produced by, sponsored by, and created by the WWE. It is a WWE podcast. Let's be clear about it. Okay, but to be fair, he did ask him about AEW and the comments that he asked Seth Rollins about the comments that he made about AEW and what, right. he, what he did about Kenny Omega. So, yes, they are WWE-centric, but I do believe they're going to allow him to push that envelope, so to say. Okay. You know, well, yeah. let's let's see if that happens, Jeff. Uh, well, this is what I was going to say. This is Seth Rollins hit on something, and, I, and it really made total sense. When they ask him, why is he getting booed? And he said, because he is no longer the flavor of the month. And there's truth to it. No, that's very true. That's the typical fan. If they decide all of a sudden they don't like you, you're getting booed out of the building. If they want to get behind you, they're going to get behind you and cheer you and and, and chant, you deserve this. Yeah. You deserve it. And and if I hear another you deserve it chant, I'm going to smack somebody. I mean... They also made Seth look pretty weak in that they basically had him second. Uh, the nuts in that hell in the cell. Well, also they before that they made him Becky Lynch's boyfriend. You know they made they made yeah. And look, I hate to say it, it's it's not misogyny, it's not sexism, but for the most part, wrestling fans don't want couples. We there don't you want. We You're don't absolutely want right. Right. We, 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 we might tolerate Jimmy Garvin and Precious in 1984 spraying uh, perfume into Rick Martel's eyes to try to get the AWA world but title. Heel. Right. But we don't want Becky and Seth versus Lacey and Baron Corbin right. in the main event of a pay-per-view. Sure. As, ob- as obvious by the fact that more tarps than fans were at that pay-per-view, from there what I understand. I, I mean, and to be fair... It's, it, Jim Cornette actually hit on this on his podcast on the experience, I believe, and they were asking him about the the Seth Rollins deal, and he said, "You want to know what you, where you cut his legs off?" He said, "When you did make him Becky Lynch's boyfriend, because he is no longer attainable to the other women in the audience." There you go. Right now, because, let's yeah. let's talk about the Achilles heel. He said, you know, real quick, but this is what he said. He was like, "You never would have seen Dusty Rhodes have Ricky Morton come out and cut a po- uh, promo about his girlfriend being at home." Right. <laughs> okay, well, let, let me right, right. let me uh, let me uh, bring up the Achilles heel of the WWE writing team, and that is the Ultimate Warrior's wife. Okay, Dana Warrior has been named head of the WWE writing staff. 
for the women. What the hell does she know about writing for wrestling? She may not, evidently she knows enough to have gotten a head writer job and she's in charge of the women's division and before she even got to, basically from my understanding, when she went to Vince, she said, I want a job. He said, what do you want to do? She said, I want to try my hand at creative. And he said, okay, pitch me some ideas. She pitched them. They said, okay, that looks like it would work. And they gave her a job. Well, in, in fairness, though, let's, let's get to the truth of the matter, which is that they said they would take care of her, and they are. Well, I mean, giving her, well, Jeff, giving her, took care of her. Giving her a writing job, making her the head of the team, I don't know if that's taking care of her or doing her a great disservice. Mike, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, first let me say that I met the Ultimate Warrior in 2012. It was two years before he passed. And I know that the Ultimate Warrior had controversial statements about Heath Ledger, about homosexuality. I wasn't aware of those statements when I started watching Ultimate Warrior's motivational videos in 2011 and 12. And I found his motivational videos about exercise, about reading books, about the Declaration of Independence, I found those very awesome. And so I went to a show in uh, Massachusetts. It was uh, big-time wrestling. They brought in uh, the Ultimate Warrior. My buddy Steve Ricard got me a free ticket. And I met the Ultimate Warrior, and I got to talk to him. Now, that being said, I can tell you, with no offense to Ultimate Warrior's memory or to his wife, uh, Dana Warrior, that I'm a better writer than Dana Warrior, point blank, period. I, I just am. And uh, that that's the truth. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, my, my feeling is nepotism. The nepotism is strong. I mean, Vince McMahon bought the WWE or the WWF or Capital Sports, whatever you want to call it, from his father for one million dollars. At the time, the company was valued at 17 million dollars. I think that was 1982. So uh, Cody Rhodes. Look, I, I you know, Cody Rhodes, we he is in the position he's in. Through his own hard work, yes, but whether he can legally use the Rhodes last name or not, people know that he's... His last name is Rhodes, and they he, got he's a touch of it. Yeah. That goes a long way. Look, and, and even Chris Jericho, his father was a, a, an athlete, a, a hockey player. Yes. You know, my, my dad and my mom were hardworking people as well, as I'm sure you guys uh, as well, but the thing is, nepotism in the pro wrestling industry is big... And uh, I've I've done like look there was a time when I read Dallas Page Mick Foley and they all had these stories about how they got into the wrestling business and it was never because they sent a resume to WWE.com yep. or WCW.com it's right. because they worked at some nightclub or they met somebody so I, I remember sure. going to Mohegan Sun I remember I remember going to Mohegan Sun around 2005 with storylines in hand and and yeah. handing my storyline to John Cena who I think was the U.S. champion at the time. And I, I, you know, at the time, Cena had five people around him, not later. But I remember handing my storyline to John Cena, giving him the quick pitch. Hey, John, I've been trying to get a job with the WWE as a writer. I think the storyline would be great for the whole company. Uh, could you could you take a look at it? And John Cena said, you know, I, I can't promise you anything, but I'll get it to the right 
Okay. Uh, for, uh, weeks later, I got I, about four weeks later, I got a phone call from a, a 207 area code, which we know is the WWE area code. Right. The phone rang. I picked it up. I was very excited. The person on the other end said, hello, sir, is this Michael Messier? I said, yes. He said, did you write a storyline, a long storyline for WWE? I said, yes, I did. He said, well, sir, I, I met Mahegan's son, and I'm in the tutorial circle. Uh, we found your uh, notebook in one of our rooms, and we just wanted to make sure that you knew it was there because it seems very important. So the janitorial Holy shit. So the janitorial service guy and Mohegan Sun had more respect for my writing than apparently John Cena did. So frustrated that John Cena's father, who's a nice guy, but he sells a he sells a, a bad cigar. I'll tell you that because he doesn't put. Uh, uh, packets in his cigar uh, humidors, I get a little upset that the nepotism is rich in wrestling, that they'll get uh, Dana Warrior, God bless her, and God bless her daughters, because I was a big Warrior fan. They'll put her at the top of the writing staff for the women's division, even though I'm a better writer. They'll put John Cena's, John Cena's father. They'll put uh, Nia Jax, even though she's uh, a little sloppy, and she hurts her opponents, and she hurts Becky Lynch. They'll put her on TV and Tamina because she's Jimmy Snooker's daughter. Yeah. They'll put all these people with family. Messier, Mike Messier, Jeff the Ref, Angelo. They'll, they won't go time of day because it's a nepotism-based company, and that's all it ever has been. So there you go. Mike said on something that I have often said to me and, you know, amongst me and my, my wrestling insider friends, and I ain't just talking like Marks that watch the sport. I'm talking to actual people who know what the hell we're talking about. I said, if WWE really wants to wants to get back to how to write storylines, you're going to sit there. You're going to take six to seven diehard fans, and I mean ones that know that business from the 1970s on up through today, and you're going to sit us down and you're going to say, okay, let's see what you can do. You're in charge of, of the main events. You're in charge of the mid carders. You're in charge of the lower card. You're in charge of the women. Right. You're in charge of, of Raw. You're in charge of, of, of SmackDown. And and and. and that's how you can sit there and maybe get them back as you actually have these creative writing. When you're putting in people, I need you to have a college degree in creative writing. Okay. When did you ever watch the wrestling product? We need you to have an in-depth knowledge. Well, I've watched it for the last two years. Right. Well, part of the problem, Jeff, part of the, a part of the problem, not, not the problem in full. better for most of their well, writing staff. Hold on, hold on, hold on a second. A part of the problem, not the problem in total, is that the WWE writing staff consists largely of college interns that are working their way through school. They come and go. It's like a revolving door. Well, again, it goes to what I said. If you pitch an idea and Vince doesn't use it, after about four weeks, he's shit canning you. But that's that's not enough time to get your feet wet. It's that's not enough time to make an impression. It goes deeper. I mean, it basically is what happened to Eric Bischoff. They set him up for failure, right? You know, you 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 bring somebody into a position and you go, okay, we need you to produce us an award-winning storyline in four weeks. Otherwise, you're out the door. Well, and not defending Eric Bischoff, but let's be honest about it. It was not totally Vince's call. No, that wasn't, but I mean, he, I mean, Eric was put into a position by 
by Fox and by 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 WWE. Well, I mean, Jeff, let, let's just be, let's just be honest about it. Let's be clear about it. Anybody in that position, whether it was Eric Bischoff uh, or Paul Heyman, we would have all failed. Ex- that's exactly right. Yep, you're ab- you're absolutely right. It's even Mike Messier he should have seen the writing on the wall and he just unfortunately didn't even Mike Messier with as as creative as he is with as great a writer as he is Mike would have failed they would have found some excuse to shit can him well here's the thing here's the thing guys you can't you can't turn around in four months uh, a product or a show that people have lost faith in. I think I think the biggest thing that AEW has going for it in particular is they're the babyface promotion right now. Yep. Bingo. You nailed it. Right. That's they're exactly the, right. They're the new kid on the block, Mike. Shiny toy. That's how look, that's how Obama got a toy. People see what's good about you. Uh, AEW is the shiny toy, they're the babyface promotion. And right now, WWE is the heel promotion. Yep. And, and, yeah. and that's just the way it is. And what will it take for WWE to get into the good graces of the smart marks? I don't know the answer. I think things like the Saudi Arabian shows don't help. I think that the women's match does help. And I'll say this. Because they did the women's match, I resubscribed to the network. I've been so critical about the WWE not doing the women's match in Saudi Arabia and being... Um, uh, accepting of these provisions put upon them by the Saudi Arabian government, that I said, hey, look, once they announced <laughs> that they were going to have a women's match on, on Halloween Day, I said I would be a big hypocrite if I didn't give this a chance. I've been such a critic of them. Here That's they are. that you were willing to do that and admit that. I'm, I'm yeah. actually impressed on that. I really am. Because Jeff, I have a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Mike mentioned something important. The smart marks. My question for you, Jeff, have the smart marks killed the business? In a roundabout way, they have. I mean... How much of that is is the fault of people like uh, Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez? I I hold them... No, I hold a a hard candle or the fire to their feet in a big, big way because... it all kind of goes encompasses what I said earlier about the whole internet coming into play too. The fans, okay. you know, they, they pay attention to what Meltzer and Alvarez, and they look at them as being the experts. And they say, if Meltzer says he doesn't like something, we automatically must not. We got to not like it. And, and why? What? Who gave Dave Meltzer because that he, power? Because because everybody gave him credibility as being the dirt sheet guy and the dirt sheet rider uh, during the Monday Night Wars. Why? Why? I don't know why. I don't. I don't know what made him become the all-knowing guru since the 1980s, other than it became a known fact that his dirt sheets got passed around the back and the boys paid attention to it in the back, and then it became... You know, you kind of were an insider if you knew about it and you were one of the fans that subscribed to it but before the Internet. And then the Internet came out and it was still an infant and you could still subscribe to that and the various other newsletters and, and find, you know, wherever else you may get your news. And you felt like, you know what, I know what's going on behind the scenes. And that's what you wanted to know. And then everybody all of a sudden has started getting access to that same 
bit of information and everybody started being able to form an opinion. And therefore, I mean, you have before it was it wasn't even the smart fans that were reading it necessarily as it was just wrestlers in the business that were reading these dirt sheets to find out what was going on in other promotions and behind the scenes. Mike, what are your thoughts on that, the smart marks? Well, look, I think it's it's a tough thing to say that fans shouldn't be smart. I mean, that's like saying... Uh, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be smart to it, but... Right, but, uh, well, let's put it this way. If, if, if We're smart marks, right? I mean, yeah. here we are. We, we're talking about it. We're passionate. I think when I was, you know, a 12-year-old kid reading Pro Wrestling Illustrated and bringing that to the Capitol Center to watch a wrestling match, and probably 99% illustrated, and I did, that made me the smart mark of that era. You know what I mean? Because but I read... You, but, okay, what would you have done if you had been sitting there at the Cap Center in 1989 and the guy beside you said, hey, look, here's a dirt sheet. This is what I get sent to my house every single week, and this is what's getting ready to happen in behind the scenes. So then my eyes would have bulged out of my head with, with uh, <laughs> shock and joy. But because Pro Wrestling Illustrated kayfabe all their stories. That's true. That's true. So, but, yeah. I, mean, what I, I mean, a smart market to me are the ones who go, I know how y'all do it. And therefore, because I know how you do it, I, I, you know, I know what your business is. I know how you guys do it. You know, they know all the secrets. Oh, I, I know you. I saw y'all when you bladed. Okay, are you sure you actually saw the guy blade, or are you just assuming you know when he did it? Well, let's 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 blame once again tough enough, and let's blame all the you sh you shoot interviews and all the RF video shoot interviews. Oh, I mean, yes, yes, you know Lord. what I mean. So, so I mean, look, I, I hung out with Kevin Nash on the set of uh, Blue Line, and Kevin Nash and I eventually were in a movie that I co-wrote called The Manor by uh, released by Lionsgate, and Kevin Nash told us stories till five in the morning. That were very similar to his U-shoot stories. I mean, stories about the end of WCW, right. yep. deciding to, to beat Goldberg, but wasn't uh, he? He told us that it wasn't his decision; that that was decided uh, without his uh, input and so forth. My, my, Except for he was the booker at the time, so how did you not have final say so on that? He but. claims that he wasn't. He claims that uh, he was the booker after that. So, but I mean, my my basic thing is. It's a chicken or the egg thing. I tend mm -hmm. not to blame the fans. Exactly. I, tend, I have one of my rants on my YouTube, Mike, Mike Messier, Angry Wrestling Fan videos, where I say, why do older... Them. Oh, they're fun. Why do older wrestling fans hate younger wrestling fans? And the first thing I say is, it's not that we hate the younger wrestling fans, it's that we pity them that they don't have better wrestling to watch. I say that all the time to my younger wrestling fans. I'm like, I wish you guys could have grown up in the 80s when I did when fans. I'm like, you could have a building rocking off of a George South versus Ronnie Garvin match. You really right. could. Jeff, I have a question for you. Yeah. Why do you hate me? Oh. <laughs> you know that. I, I got I got to make a, an interesting point, guys. It's kind of a wrestling topic that's uh, relevant. We talk about... Uh, how the WWE got all this money to do this SmackDown Friday nights. But who, if you really think about it, and this just occurred to me this morning, as a matter of fact, driving through South Carolina. And as I said before we went on the air, South Carolina is the Massachusetts of the South. Uh, everybody's very uh, sarcastic and rude, but they still have a heart of gold. I love as it. As I discovered a few times today in <laughs> South Carolina. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but but who, do you, who can you give the initial... Thanks to uh, the WWE, who should they give the initial thanks to for their big money deal to put SmackDown on the Fox Network? Who should they really be thanking? Jeff, throw it to you, kid. 
I wouldn't even know where to be. What's your? I, I don't even have an opinion on that one. I really don't. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, I'll know, I will offer an opinion. I've never really even thought about it like that. I, I have never even, you know. <laughs> Go ahead, Angela. What do you think? I think they uh, they owe a big debt of gratitude to the fan. Okay. Uh, and my reasoning for that was, it was a fan that reached out to a Fox executive. That sparked their interest. And the Fox executive that they reached out to just happened to be, serendipitously, a wrestling fan that grew up watching Jim Crockett. Okay. So that would be my the short answer. Well, maybe maybe if the WWE was nice, they give one tenth of one percent of the money to that particular fan, that fan can live comfortably for the rest of his or her days. But answer, I was actually kind of close to what you just said when you mentioned Jim Crockett Promotions. I would say the WWE owes a debt of thanks to Ted Turner. The reason why is because Ted ah, Turner, interesting. Bischoff, he wanted a second night of program in late 1997, which started in 98. He wanted a second night and of program. On for, exactly, Jeff. He wanted Thunder, which became TBS. Thunder, Thursday Night Thunder, and because WCW did two uh, two shows a week, uh, Nitro and Vince Thunder. Vince counter it with the SmackDown. Right, Vince countered yeah. it with the SmackDown, 1999. Flash forward, I guess, uh, 18 years or 20 years on the dot, you've got SmackDown gets this billion-dollar bonanza with the Fox Network. Wow. Now, will WWE ever acknowledge if it wasn't for our competition, if it wasn't for this Southern promotion, Jim Crockett Promotions, who sold to Ted Turner in 1998 under financial distress, but some of the original people were still associated with that group, like like uh, so, some of the Crockett's, I believe. Uh, uh, they will you know, never give credit to Jim Crockett no. Promotions for anything. They won't even give them credit for the fact that they had a boost in their and their network buy rates as soon as they start releasing World Championship Wrestling from the 80s uh, TBS studios. They will never nah. give WCW credit. Yeah, that'll I mean, never happen, Jeff. I, I mean, should they? Yeah, absolutely, they should. Right. I mean, you know, when you get down to the nitty-gritty, if it hadn't been for Ted Turner... Even having probably given, we'll go back to even Black Saturday, which we mentioned in our very first podcast. Had he not given Vince McMahon that platform back in 1984, would they have had yeah. exposure that they? Well, let let me give both of you gentlemen something to chew on. <laughs> History is written by the winner, and Absolutely. Vince McMahon was clearly the winner. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. Um, yeah, he is. They, there's the survivor, is how I would put it. And okay, I, I, I absolutely I, concede that. Th this is why I have one of my videos, which is uh, collect your wrestling contraband. I encourage all fans to have a stack of VHS tapes, a stack of DVDs that is non-dependent, like the person in the basement with their baked beans and their tuna fish in case of <laughs> nuclear war. In case the WWE sells out to the Saudi Arabians or sells out to Disney, that, that'll go yeah. through with a brush and cover up anything that's violent. I mean, can you oh, imagine God, yeah. Disney bought the WWE, what they do, the Tully Blanchard, Magnum TA match from Stark 85? Oh, my God, I please. Imagined, I've imagined these nightmare scenarios. 
That's why I tell my wife to. I've imagined Mickey Mouse coming off the top rope at some time, and it scares the hell out of me. And on that on that note, we will contraband everybody. On that note, we will end another broadcast. Mike Messier, thank you so much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Jeff? Hopefully we can have a few few more here in the future because I enjoyed this very much. Oh, yeah, we're definitely going to bring Mike back. I uh, I have his number now. We're going to – we'll definitely be in contact. And please go see Disregard the Vampire. It's an amazing film. I encourage everybody. Mike Messier is the man's name. He is an award-winning filmmaker, a director, producer, writer, and actor. And uh, his credits are voluminous. You like that word, Jeff? I practiced that all day. Voluminous. Well, Jeff, I'm going to give everybody our heads up. Uh, We are on Facebook.com forward slash wrestling with the future. We are on Google Play Music. Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, iTunes, and you can catch the video format of our show on YouTube. And for Mike Messier and Jeff the Ref Robinson, we'll see you at the matches. Happy wrestling, everybody. Good Good night and goodbye.